You're listening to the Energy Policy Podcast, a a production of Colorado State University and the Center for the New Energy Economy. I'm your host, Tom Plant. I'm your co-host, Jeff Ling. And we're here today with Will Tour from the Southwest Energy Efficiency Project. He's the Transportation Programs Manager there. And we're going to really focus in on uh, electric vehicles, vehicle electrification and, and charging infrastructure. Uh, we've had uh, a, a really important uh, change in energy emissions around uh, the country this year, where we've seen electric generation emissions declining on a fairly steady path uh, to the point where now transportation greenhouse gas emissions are actually the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the country, which is a really substantial first time since 1979, a real a real change, real shift. And we see an ongoing decline in the greenhouse gas emissions from the electric sector, but we're, we're still seeing, even with increased fuel efficiency and all these things, we're still seeing an increase in growth in emissions from the transportation sector. So we're here to talk with Will Tour about uh, some of the solutions to this. Great. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, thanks for coming. And it was striking this year, you know, watching the, the rolling average, rolling 12-month average on greenhouse gas emissions for the first time in 30 years, transportation overtaking electricity. And I think it reflects the fact that there's been a lot of great work going on to increase efficiency, add renewables, shut down coal plants in the electric sector. Transportation sector, you know, in many ways is more difficult to work with because you're not just dealing with electric utilities, you're dealing with hundreds of millions of people who own vehicles. And so it's a pretty big transformation that's required. Yeah, so we're talking about, you know, when we talk about vehicle electrification, we're talking about moving from these millions of mobile source emissions to a, a more a more manageable sort of emissions profile where you're you're regulating the electric sector and that's where your emissions are taking place as opposed to every vehicle and and as those emissions get cleaner within the electric sector your vehicle becomes cleaner over time yep. as opposed to the other way around yep. right? yeah no it's a shocking thing you're used to cars where you get a car and then every year it gets dirtier as the engine degrades and the emissions controls degrade You've got, with electric vehicles, it's the opposite. Every year they get cleaner as the grid cleans up. And it gives us a pathway towards zero emissions because we know how to clean up the grid and move towards near zero carbon. There is no near zero carbon approach that relies on burning fossil fuels and internal combustion engines. Right. So... It's this is you know electric vehicles have been around for quite some time. Really started to gain adoption over the last you know ten years, really, and a, and a continual acceleration in adoption. But this year we've really seen a yeah. lot of stuff happening. So we've had the the federal tax credit of seventy five hundred dollars for electric vehicles for quite some time. We've got state tax credits all over the country that are in varying degrees. And then this year, we heard an announcement from the White House about alternative fuel uh, corridors uh, throughout the country where they're planning on putting, I think there's about 25,000 miles of, of highways across 38 states where they want to put uh, fueling infrastructure every 50 miles or so. And then we have this big VW settlement, which 
Um, most people think about the VW settlement. They think about getting a check yep. from VW if you have a if you have a, a diesel VW vehicle, which is two thirds of the settlement. But then there's another third, which is four point seven billion dollars. That's really going to this, uh, you know, uh, electrification and a reduction in NOx emissions and various things like that. So can you talk about, you know, number one, where is this $4.7 billion going? And number two, what are the role of states in, that, in, in, in managing that settlement? So there are two major components to the $4.7 billion in the VW settlement. One component is a $2.7 billion uh, nitrogen oxides remediation or mitigation fund that is money that is allocated to each state based on a formula that takes into account how many non-compliant VWs were registered in that state. And it ranges from, at the bottom end, states that had very few VWs will get $7.5 million, up to at the top end, you have states that are getting hundreds of millions of dollars. Here in Colorado, Colorado, for example, will get $61 million from, from that portion of the settlement. And the settlement lays out a set of allowable uses that the state may then choose among. And the allowable uses include up to 15% of it can go to the light-duty vehicle elect charging network. So you, if you're looking nationwide... That's nearly $450 million that could go into building out the fast charge infrastructure along the highway. So to build out those alternative fuel vehicle corridors that the federal government has identified, in addition to being able to go to other Im important uses like workplace charging. The other 85% has to go to medium and heavy duty vehicles, basically, and is focused on replacing older, dirtier diesels with things that have lower nitrogen oxide emissions. And there's a lot of flexibility there. You could simply replace old diesel vehicles with new diesel vehicles, but you can also focus on replacing those old diesel vehicles with electric vehicles. Where we think the, the biggest opportunity is actually in the transit sector, because electric buses are really market ready. They weren't a couple of years ago, but they are now, and we're starting to see a lot of transit agencies adopting electric buses. And the, the big opportunity with these funds in the, that medium and heavy-duty sector is really to support transit electrification in the near term and electrification of other kinds of trucking over the slightly longer term. But so it'll be up to the inv individual states to decide. And, you know, the money... The money could be spent in ways that, frankly, over the long term wouldn't do very much. So if you're helping to buy new diesels to replace old diesels, that's probably going to happen anyhow. You're maybe accelerating it by a couple years. But a decade from now, you'll look back and you won't really be able to tell that you made much of a difference. Whereas if states choose to invest it in electrification, I think it could really be transformative. So you know, one of the things you mentioned that I want to I want to emphasize is its replacement. So you have to actually destroy the vehicle or yep. destroy the engine that you're replacing. So we're making sure that that doesn't just get you know sold on the secondary yep. market and still be on the road. You actually take that vehicle off of the road and then replace it with one of one of these sorts of things. And you're really focusing in. Um, I, I think that the allowable uses are fairly broad in terms of 
in terms of what kinds of vehicles are all larger, uh, you know, heavy heavy vehicles, medium and heavy vehicles. But you're really focusing in on the transit um, uh, transit applications, uh, bus applications, uh, schools, you know, but various different things yeah. might fall into that category. And that's really because that's a one area in the medium and heavy duty vehicle sector where electrification is just clearly market ready. Yeah. That you know the one that's pretty close behind is medium duty delivery trucks. Mm -hmm. We've already seen a number of large companies like Coca Cola and Frito Lay and UPS and FedEx have begun to adopt uh, electric delivery trucks. So we think there's also an opportunity there. So we we wouldn't suggest restricting it to transit vehicles, but we do think that's where the largest opportunity lies. So we've got a $14.7 billion settlement. We've got about $10 billion that are going to checks to people. You've got $4.7 billion, which is then divided into two sections. You've got $2 billion and you've got $2.7 billion. We're talking about the $2.7 billion piece. And that $2.7 billion piece, 15% of that can go, doesn't have to, but can go to the charging infrastructure that we're all familiar with um, that would provide level two and level three uh, charging infrastructure for the public, basically, for light uh, electric vehicles. And then you've got the other 85%, and that's the component we're talking about for these larger heavy-duty transit uh, bus type of applications. Yeah, I think that that, that's accurate. Then the other $2 is a zero-emission vehicle investment fund in which $800 million needs to be spent in California and $1.2 billion in the rest of the country. And that's an interesting structure where Volkswagen will actually essentially control that fund. It will be investments directly made by Volkswagen. They will propose what they want to do with it. In California, it will be reviewed by the California Air Resources Board. And in the rest of the country, it will be reviewed by the EPA. The VW has to spend it in ways that are brand neutral, so it can't be spent you know, just to promote Volkswagen, Volkswagen electric yeah. vehicles. <laughs> uh, <coughs> and they, they can spend it on infrastructure, so they can spend it on building out that charging network. They can spend it on marketing and promotion of electric vehicles, and they can spend it on efforts that in, involve shared electric vehicles. So electric vehicle car sharing, getting electric vehicles into rental fleets, um, potentially even things like electric vehicles for Uber and Lyft and autonomous vehicles, sort of investments that would get EVs that are shared by multiple members of the public. There's a fair amount of speculation out there about what VW is going to do. We don't know yet. But we're going to find out very shortly, right? Yeah, so... So yes, the the way that it works is Volkswagen has to take public input on this. They're opening a public input process on, I believe, December 9th. There's then a 30-day comment period. And then after that, they have another 90 days uh, to announce their first tranche of investment. They'll be making these investments over a period of 10 years in four separate tranches. But the that first tranche, which outside of California would be about $300 million, uh, they'll be announcing sometime early this spring. Wow. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of speculation out there about what they're going to do. 
you know, one one likely use will be a large scale investment in electric vehicle charging infrastructure, and whether whether that is investment you know along those national corridors that have been identified or focused in particular metro areas, we really don't know. And will they? You, you mentioned they're going to be taking public comments starting December 9th. Are they going to release a draft plan and take public comment on that, or are they just going to start from from a blank slate with public comment? So we don't really know. I believe it's going to be simply accepting public comment on a blank slate. Okay. So, Will, let's talk about um, charging infrastructure for a minute. Um, I think the White House announcement said that there are uh, there were 500 charging facilities in 2008. There are some 16,000 now, which sounds like a lot, but it really isn't. And if you've ever tried to find a charging <laughs> station in Denver... Uh, or, or many metropolitan areas, it's tough, and they go quickly. Um, we, we've had sort of a, a, a joke internally whether this is a chicken or the egg problem or it's a field of dreams. If you build it, they will come, you know, what the right analogy is here. But We need the chicken you, and the egg. You need, you need them both <laughs> at the same time. You know, so there are some 20 models of EVs out there, and they're becoming more and more affordable. How real do you think this uh, the question of long-term range anxiety, right, long travel range anxiety, that, but also just as consumers see these charging stations, does it become more real to them as something that yeah. they can see themselves in? Can, can you talk about that? So there is a lot of evidence that when you get more charging infrastructure out there, more people buy electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. We see this you know, in workplaces where there's some data from the DOE that suggests that when you have employers who provide workplace charging, that the level of uptake of EVs among their employees is nine times higher wow. than among the general population. Wow. When the International Council for Clean Transportation has done analysis looking at the cities and the states that have high levels of EV adoption and have found a very strong correlation between availability of charging infrastructure and EV adoption. I think the data suggests that there's really two things that are key. One, one are financial incentives, that you know, the, the places that have created tax credits or rebates to address the higher upfront cost of electric vehicles get higher adoption, mm -hmm. and the other is infrastructure. And there's several kinds of infrastructure that are important. You know, people do most of their charging at home. About 80% of charging happens at home. Mm -hmm. And in single-family homes, that's relatively easy to do. It's a lot harder in, you know, apartments and condos and townhomes where you don't control your own parking space in right. the same way. Right. So that's one area where we really need to deploy additional charging infrastructure. Um, about 15% of charging happens at workplaces, and again, we, we know that when you put it out there, a lot more people get EVs. So I think workplace charging is the second really important mm -hmm. place. And then the third is that public charging. And you need to be a little careful with the public charging. You know, some of the initial charging that went out there was what's known as level two charging, which takes a number of hours to charge a vehicle and was sometimes put in places where people are only there for very short time periods. Mm -hmm. And those often didn't get as much use as you would want because, you know, if you're only going to be there for 15 minutes, it doesn't do you a great deal of good. Right. Uh, but fast charging, I think, is becoming increasingly important. 
And we need fast charging along those long distance corridors in order to give people the confidence that they can take those long distance trips and be able to get where they need with, a, with an electric vehicle. I think that's especially important as we're moving towards longer range EVs. Mm -hmm. You know, in the past, most EVs, you know, you've had a range around 100 miles. This coming year, 2017, the 2017 Chevrolet Bolt will be a approximately 250-mile range EV that is within most consumers' price range, unlike the long-range EVs that uh, Tesla has, has had right. available. And... You know, when you, when you look at how people use Teslas, people use Teslas very different than, uh, differently than other EVs. It really is the primary vehicle that people will use for long-distance travel. The Tesla owners. The, the, the Tesla owners. The primary long-distance long vehicle. It, yes. And so I think we're going to see that starting to be how people look at other EVs as these affordable mm -hmm. long-range EVs become available. But in order... In order to facilitate that, we need to do basically what Tesla's done, which is mm -hmm. have a network of high-speed chargers across the country that allow people to get where they need to go. Yeah, I think so that's that really, that, one of the other things that I think has really changed in the electric vehicle market is it used to be that a high-speed charger was an option, and I think that's fairly becoming mm -hmm. standard in vehicles now. It used to be you have to spend yeah. more for you know, the high-speed charging, you know, yep. unit in your car. And now I think it's just a, it's a standard thing. Yeah. So this is a, this is a massive investment, all right? This is sort of a remaking of our, of our transportation infrastructure in some respects. And certainly the VW funds, the settlement, that's a lot of, there's a lot yep. of money there, but that certainly won't be enough. There's, yep. I think, increasing focus on public utilities as a pathway here that, you know, Tom talked about how the lines are kind of crossing. The utility sector is declining in emissions and the transportation sector is increasing. And kind of an increasing awareness that the utility sector yep. could kind of save the transportation yep. sector from a carbon standpoint. And vice versa. Right, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. provide new yeah, loads. The, yeah, yeah, the transportation yeah. sector could, could Load save building. utilities yeah. from a financial perspective. Edison that, Electric Institute has this quote that transportation electrification is necessary for the viability of the electric utility industry going forward. Oh, yeah, and we're seeing, well, we're seeing flattening load. We're yeah. seeing uh, you know more and more distributed generation that's yep. not owned by the utilities. And, and as you look at the, the financial impact that that has on these large utilities, certainly something that can provide a house worth yeah. of load. <laughs> but that said, I, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that major utilities and, and, and PG&E may be the, the best example here that have gone to their regulators to say this is something that is a public necessity. Yep. Have, it's not been all warm and fuzzy. And uh, there have been a few states that have moved on this. Oregon and Washington have... A, um, have provided in law and commission rule the ability for utilities to earn a rate of return, in some cases a higher rate of return. But the, I would say the burden of proof is still really on, in this case, the utilities to document what the need is. And if, if you're a utility planner and you're looking at the data saying, well, less than 1% of new vehicle purchases are, are EVs and most of the charging is done at home, you know, is there a is there a new need for for this level? It's a you know, it's a great it's a great point, Jeff. And I think you know what you're talking to is as we look at specifically what states can do, is is this 
precise point you're making, which in most states, it it is not allowed for yep. for a utility mm-hmm. to to earn a rate of return on infrastructure that they put in for yep. the purposes of transportation electrification, and that's something that can be changed at the state basis. And the other the other thing is that most utility commissions, you know, the ones that don't derive their power from from the Constitution, get their authority from the state statutes, right. and that's yep. that's pretty much the standard. And those state statutes, you know, providing that direction were created before there were electric vehicles, yep. you know. And this is really a new thing for commissions, uh, not only to deal with, but also a new thing for legislators to look at in terms of empowering those commissions to have this as one of their core roles. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of activity in this front over the last two years. So, you know, California, Oregon, and Utah, as examples, Mm -hmm. are all states that in the last couple of years have made it clear through legislation that utilities can rate-based investment in electric vehicle infrastructure and have... Required those utilities to develop electric vehicle plans and submit them to their regulators for review. In California, the three big utilities, PG&E, Southern Cal, Edison, and San Diego Gas and Electric, you know, collectively initially submitted plans for nearly a billion dollars of investment in EV infrastructure, focused largely on workplace charging and charging in multifamily dwellings, and secondarily on fast charging along corridors. And while the PG&E one has been relatively tough, the the Southern California uh, proposals were received much more warmly by the regulators. Mm -hmm. Rocky Mountain Power in Utah is... It's fewer stations. Is that in part why? Well, no, I think the big difference had had to do with kind of the ownership of the stations, Ah, whether whether you're going to have a single network completely controlled by the utility or whether the utility was investing in what they call make-ready, providing the, the power right up to the charger but allowing the individual customer to choose their own charger. I see. And still maintaining kind of a competitive marketplace on the charger side. The, but I, I do think it's going to be important for state legislatures to grapple with this issue and to... Expressly authorize utilities to invest in this space. You know, I think that there's huge value to the utilities in transportation electrification, mm-hmm. and there's value to their customers also because most EV charging takes place during off-peak period. By adding more off-peak load, you're creating downward pressure on rates, so it's good for all ratepayers. In addition, you've got a real opportunity to manage this load. That if you think, for instance, about workplace charging that's taking place during the day, the customer doesn't care whether their car is charging at 9 a.m. or at 2 p.m. as long as it's charged at the end of the day when they're ready to drive home. So, so kind of load shedding in the day, and then and then. Or in uh, California, they're really the focused on, on you know feeding the duck. You know, yeah, one of right, one of the, right. the thoughts is that they could control the, the charging in order to so this is, maximize this, charging during the solar let's, peak. Let's, let's not get too far into the, into the lingo. So feeding the duck, you're talking about the sort of what's known as the duck curve, which yep. is what happens when you have large amounts of distributed generation, mainly solar, on the on the system. And it's 
it's decreasing the load until the point when the sun starts to go yep. down and then you have the big duck's neck yep. where, the, where the load <laughs> comes back up again. And so what, what you're talking about is really dynamic load management. Yep. Um, and, and that's something that a battery can provide, although I don't know that we're seeing yet much vehicle-to-grid or V-to-G technology being offered by the actual vehicle manufacturers. Right. And a lot of that concern, I think, is related to this concern over the warranty on the batteries. Is that well, well, right now, I think where, where people are seeing the near-to-medium-term opportunity is not in vehicle-to-grid, but simply in managing the charging itself. Right. So mm-hmm. over the long term, there may be the opportunities about feeding yeah. power back in, yeah. but it's really the notion that if you can control when the charging is taking place and ramp up the charging during those periods where you have, say, excess renewables on the grid. Yeah. And so there's a lot of uh, important grid benefits that could come from adding electric vehicles in addition to the environmental benefits that come from moving from burning gas or diesel to electricity. In adi- if we want to see deep adoption of, of electric vehicles fast enough, because they're growing, they're growing rapidly. You know, this year, year to date, we've seen 67% increase in the sales of plug-in uh, hybrid vehicles compared wow. to last year and a 20% increase in the sale of full battery electric vehicles compared to last year. So it's rapid growth. But if you look at what's required if we want to you know, meet climate targets like 80% GHG reductions by 2050, it needs to grow a lot faster. And I think that's a significant utility role in infrastructure and in educating customers about the benefits of EVs is really important to speeding up the, the growth of the electric vehicle market. So we've talked a little bit about some of the things that, um, you know, that, that can be done. One is, you know, uh, a, an adoption of a ZEV standard like California has, because states have the option of, of adopting either California's standard or the federal standard. And um, we, should we describe yeah. the, what, what that means? Let's go back to that. Yeah, okay. let's go back to that in just a second. Um, there's, there's uh, you know, tax credits. We've talked about that. Um, there's EV infrastructure, putting in an EV infrastructure. We've talked a little bit about that. When we talk about the tax credit, there's something that you were very instrumental in in Colorado, which is the state tax credit, contra- a little separate from the federal tax credit. That's transferable among and, and usually claimed by the dealership and, and lowering the upfront cost to the customer. But most state tax credits aren't transferable, and so they aren't claimed by the the, the dealer, which means that when you're financing your car, you end up financing this short-term cost that you're going to get back in a tax credit. And so one of the things that you were instrumental in doing is changing the Colorado tax credit to be a transferable tax credit so that we'll now see those credits reflected in the upfront cost of the consumer, which is an enormous, an enormous gain. Um, and then the other uh, we wanted to talk about is the ZEV. Uh, the uh, standard in California that states can opt into. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So under under federal law, California is a one state that has the ability to adopt their own emission standards for motor vehicles. And it's under what's known as Section 177 of the Clean Air Act. And so California has adopted a set of clean car standards that include 
include a set of fuel efficiency standards, smog standards, and what's known as the zero emission vehicle mandate. And what the ZEV requirement does is it requires that every automaker that is selling uh, vehicles within the state ha has to show that during a given year that they have sold a certain percentage of their vehicles as zero emission vehicles, which can be plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, full battery electric vehicles, or fuel cell vehicles. And each year that percentage ramps up. It's been fairly low. It's been in, right now, I think it's around 2.4%. But it, it ramps up uh, by 2025 to 15% of new vehicles have to, have to be zero emission. And if you don't meet it, then you have to buy credits from some other automaker that has exceeded their, their requirement. It's had a big impact in California. And if you look at, here we are in the state of Colorado. Last I looked, I think there were seven electric vehicles that you could actually find on, in dealerships in Colorado. Mm. In California, it's closer to 25. Wow, Every, no kidding. Every electric vehicle that's offered is sold in the zero emission vehicle states. And in those states, every manufacturer puts significant marketing effort into selling ZEVs. In the states that don't have the zero emission vehicle requirement, you just don't see the, the same sort of focus on getting them sold. So the advantage of adopting the ZEV standard in addition to the emissions you know, benefits is you provide more options for customers, and you provide essentially marketing behind those behind those uh, vehicles because the the manufacturers are, are very motivated. They're, they have and, and if you look at California, you know it's got basically three times the electric vehicle sales as the national average, yeah. and it's a, a big piece of it is the ZEV standard. And other states have the ability to adopt it, so. Other states can't create their own standard, but they can either just remain within sort of the national rules or they can adopt the, the California standard. And at this point, I believe there are nine states that have adopted the zero emission vehicle requirement, and there's nothing to stop more states from opting in. So is that, have you seen, I know that we've seen that sort of a dynamic in California, but are we seeing that same dynamic so in the other ZEV we're, states? We're going to starting in 2017. Okay. The way that the rule was written, it's sort of complicated and wonky, but essentially there was what was known as a traveling provision that allowed the automakers to average across the states so they could focus all of their efforts in California and still get credit kind of everywhere. But that changes in 2017, mm -hmm. and they're going to have to start uh, meeting the standard individually in each state uh, that has oh, a requirement. Well. So I think we're going to see a big, a much bigger focus by the auto manufacturers in each one of the dev states starting the, in 2017. One of the other things that you've also been very involved in is is taking you know a model that we've talked about on the distributed uh, energy side, the solar. It's often known as solarized Portland, which is kind of this. Mm -hmm. It was yeah. started in Portland, but it's it's basically you know using this um, uh, high volume negotiation of of discounts when when a when a whole community or a neighborhood um, invests in in this case yep. solar energy, they get a lower cost per per uh, watt on their on their installations. And you've uh, actually been involved in this same kind of a program around EVs 
And this is something that communities, not we're not talking about necessarily states, but communities can do yeah. uh, in their community, and it's a voluntary type of a thing. It's a real market force-driven uh, sort of a program, but maybe uh, describe yeah. that a little bit. Yeah, I'd have to say these are some of the most fun things I've ever been involved in, yeah. because about a year and a half ago, there were a group of us who were talking about those solar group buy programs, saying, how come no one's tried this with electric vehicles? And that led to a partnership in which the, the first one was organized. It was a partnership between the nonprofit Vote Solar, Sweep provided technical assistance, and Boulder County, City and County of Denver, and Adams County uh, all, all joined together to offer a program. Put Just went out to the private sector with a request for proposals to car dealers and automakers asking, what discount will you give for a limited time offer that's available to residents of these counties in which the local governments and other trusted local voices will take the lead in marketing the program. In, in that first, uh, first round, uh, Nissan was the automaker that responded, and they offered an $8,750 discount below MSRP on Nissan Leafs. We were able to layer that with the state and federal tax credits and explain to people that you could get a new electric vehicle for about 10000 bucks, Which is incredible. It, it's an incredible price. <laughs> and they, it really created kind of this community engagement and mobilization. The fact that it wasn't a car company that was marketing to you, that it was kind of trusted local people, the local sustainability coordinators who were talking about the, the benefits that would come from this. And what we saw was a huge up, uptick in EV adoption. So we went from about 15 Nissan Leafs a month being purchased in those counties to about 60 a month in, you know, basically overnight. And the pro, that program was extended over a, a four-month period. During that time period, the, you know, the... The Nissan Leaf dealership in Boulder, Colorado, a town of 100,000, became the number three um, Nissan Leaf market in the country behind the entire cities of San Francisco and Los Angeles. <laughs> I mean, it, it was a hugely powerful yeah. uh, incentive for sales. And since then, we've seen a bunch of other communities that, that have tried it out. And in almost every case, what they've seen has been sales increases from, you know, factor of three up through a factor of five. Mm -hmm. In addition, it has some real interesting long-term benefits. The dealers who participate get far more knowledgeable about electric vehicles. You, you know, some of them started with one person who was kind of the EV evangelist, but pretty soon they're selling so many EVs that all of their salespeople become knowledgeable about them. We, we also saw that it led to a lot of uh, public officials buying electric vehicles. And all of a sudden, you had all of these elected and appointed officials who were driving around in their leaf saying, wait, where's the EV charging that I need? <laughs> Which was really a useful thing. Right, yeah. And since then, in the Salt Lake City area, there, there's a program. That one was organized by the University of Utah, but was mm -hmm. made available to everybody in, in the area. And they had Ford and Nissan... Uh, and BMW participating in a couple of places now. 
Uh, Chevy dealers have participated and have offered discounts on Chevy Volts. Uh, Northern Colorado has done a program organized by a nonprofit, Drive Electric Northern Colorado. And there are people working on programs in Arizona and Texas and Louisiana and Quebec. And <laughs> it's really one of those things where it just took somebody to somebody to organize it and show that it worked and it's just spreading across the country. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And, and can people find out about these sort yeah. of uh, programs on the SWEEP website? Yeah, if you go to the SWEEP website, www.swenergy.org, we have both a case study of the Colorado programs and a handbook for uh, communities that are interested in organizing one of these programs. Do this in your, in your, own, in your own community. Well, thank you so much, Will, for joining us and giving us the rundown on the state of, of electrified transportation in the U.S. This is really exciting. It's a really exciting We should year. point out that Will's been ahead of his time for, for some time now, and he did bring his bike to the office here, so that may be the, the, <laughs> the, the next evolution here. That's right. <laughs> You've been listening to the... The Energy Policy Podcast, huh? <laughs> a production of the Center for the New Energy Economy. Exactly. I'm your new host, Jeff Link. <laughs> and I'm your new co-host, Tom Flynn. Thanks for listening. <laughs>